be reading the scripture for a sermon this morning is Acts chapter 12. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. And suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to waken him and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. And the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. And Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. And when he realized this, he went home. He went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. And he knocked on the door and the gate. Sorry. It's a hard morning for all of us, I think. That song kind of, you know. He knocked at the door at the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. And when she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to be quiet, to quiet down and to then told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. And at dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. And afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Lastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. And when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It is the voice of a god, not of a man. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness, because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. Good morning. All right, I, uh, first I'm going to make a note. I was talking to someone uh, who 
said that they had a friend that, that came and visited for the first time a couple weeks ago and, uh, and then came back last week and they were like, said, uh, yeah, I saw this, this person, uh, preach was, was that the pastor? And I said, no, that was the, uh, that's the baseball coach. And then came last week and saw, uh, Dan preach and said, so that was the guy that was doing music the week before. Is that? And he said, no, that's not the pastor. So I, if, if you're here and you're new, I just want to clarify. I am also not one of the pastors here. Uh, so I'm Tim and I'm a deacon here. And uh, Dan is uh, taking some time off preaching this month so that he can work on some other things, uh, on some big picture things, and uh, yeah, to give him a chance not to have to be preparing sermons every week. So that's what's going on. So I'll be uh, preaching today and next week. So hopefully you still come back next week. <laughs> so uh, all of the children, where are all the kids at? Look at all the kids. We got some here, and some here, and a bunch here. All right, so you just heard that passage, and I struggled for a while trying to think of something for the kids in this passage, um, and uh, I kept thinking of, of two things, and it's not not uh, a, a bunch, but just a, a couple of thoughts for you guys. Um, the first is thinking about um, Peter and... Uh, and being in prison. And it made me think like, how many of you have ever felt trapped somewhere or have actually been trapped somewhere? Anybody? In a locker. In a locker. Here. Hmm, here. <laughs> so, the first thing to know is when we get done, don't ever run into the locker room and go lock yourself into a locker like Ben did. <laughs> because you'll be pretty scared. And think, I was thinking about that this morning, and it reminded me, especially since my dad is here, of when I was a little bit older than Ben, I think, uh, my brother and I were out at my grandpa's house, and my grandpa had a work truck that has the bed that have all the little doors that open. And on a hot, sunny day, my brother and I playing hide-and-seek thought it was a good idea to crawl into those and shut the doors and uh, we were in there, like, screaming and crying and sweating to death. And my dad came looking for us because he hadn't seen us in a while and found us in there. And so the first thing just to note that if, if you are ever feel trapped or scared, uh, much like Peter, that, that sometimes God even works in those things that I was thinking about, yeah, Ben's situation or that situation I had when I was a kid that, you know, my brother and I would go play for hours. And so it just happened to be that, that God um, would send dad coming and looking for us to catch us on that super hot day trapped in a, in a truck locker. And so uh, God works in that way. And so if, if you're ever in a situation, uh, you may not be thrown into prison um, but you might you might feel trapped, and it may not even be physically. Um, but if if you ever feel like um, that you're stuck, that you're trapped, that you're in a situation that you can't get out, uh, that always our answer should be to call unto God and to pray to God, because God is is faithful to answer prayers. And then the second that I thought about was we see a girl in this story. We see 
um, the little servant girl, Rhoda. And uh, Rhoda hears the, the knock at the gate, and it's Peter, and Peter's there, and she's excited, and she recognizes Peter's voice, and she runs off to go tell everybody. And have any of you ever had a situation where you go and you, you tell a sibling, or you go and tell a parent, or you tell someone something, and they just don't believe you? You have? You have? I think most people have had that, right? Especially as a kid. Like, you see something, and you go and tell people, and no one believes you. And it's, is it frustrating? Yeah, it is. And so, in this story, we see a situation like that. We see a little girl who, who realizes that God has answered our prayer. This thing that we've been praying for here has happened, and Peter's been released. And she runs and tells it, and none of the grown-ups believe her. And so, she literally has to drag him out there and show him, no, it is Peter. And so... I just wanted to give you some encouragement that um, if, if you ever feel like that, you're not the only person that this ever happened to, and that God might be using you in a situation to go show the adults around you that, that maybe God has answered a prayer, and they're blind to it, and, and they haven't seen it yet. So, um, into our passage, uh, Acts 12 is, is just a, a passage with, with two simple truths in it. Uh, the first is the power of prayer, and the second is the downfall of pride. So first, Acts 12 um, takes place at uh, Pentecost at about 44 AD. And we know this because of, of um, it, it's talking about specific people, and these things are, are also recorded even in uh, secular historians tell us um, about Herod Agrippa and about when he died. So we know this is, this is 44 AD, and we know, it, it says specifically, the, uh, during the days of unleavened bread. So this is the feast, the week right before Pentecost. So that means that this is uh, roughly about 14 years so far have passed in the book of Acts as we've been going through this. So Acts starts with when Jesus has been raised from the dead, and uh, and so at this point, we've, we've gone through at least a decade. And um, so um, I just wanted to note that because I think going through these stories is kind of hard to keep track. And, and you know, did this, have, have, have we gone over six months or have we gone over, you know, more than a decade? So that's about where we're at. And the second thing I want to note here is that there, there are some confusing characters in this passage uh, because they share names with a lot of other people that are referenced in the Bible. So the first is we see Herod. And so if you're familiar with scripture, you're like, oh, Herod, yeah, that's, that's the guy that uh, tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Or that's the guy that presided over when Jesus did get killed. So this Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great, the ruler who tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. So this is Herod Agrippa, and he was appointed ruler over Palestine, and in the time that he was appointed ruler over Palestine, he knew how much the people there hated his family. They did not like the Herods. And so at this point, he's, he's very careful to try to win their affection. And so we'll see how that plays into the passage later. The second is James. And so it, the passage tells us this is James, the brother of John. So that is one of the sons of Zebedee. He is not James, the brother of Jesus, who we hear about later in this same story. 
And then there's John. So John would have been his Semitic name, and it's common in this time for uh, for Hebrew people to have a, a Semitic name and to have a Greek name, so his Greek name is Mark. Both of these are very common names, so it makes it kind of a little bit tougher to determine exactly who he is, but most likely this is the cousin of Barnabas, the one who traveled with Paul and Barnabas later, uh, and later Peter, and also the guy that we know as Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So, now that you're set and hopefully you kind of know who the characters are in here, I'm going to be honest that uh, this was kind of a tough passage to work through this particular week. And uh, it, it, it was difficult reading a story about one godly man who is killed for his devotion to Christ and another is miraculously saved through the power of prayer. And I wrestled with this passage all week, um, thinking about how a week ago we met, and, and I, I prayed for Tim, and I prayed for Tim all week, and I know that, that many of you were as well. And we know that, that there is power in prayer, and that God in his infinite wisdom doesn't always give us what it is that, that we ask for in prayer. Um, and often our prayers are answered in, in ways that we don't necessarily ask for. And this doesn't diminish the power of prayer at all, nor should it cause us to stop seeking the Lord in prayer. So, John, his brother James, and Peter, we know, they, they made up the, the close group of three in, in Jesus' inner circle. So when Herod seized James, I'm sure that John um, was earnestly praying for his brother. And yet God did not choose to free James, and he allows him to be martyred. But yet God rescues Peter from Herod, and he showed Herod who was more powerful. And God showed Herod that when James was martyred, it wasn't because Herod was more powerful than God. It wasn't because God was weak or God was impotent, um, or for other reasons. God is the one who allowed James to be martyred. And John Mark in this passage later writes in his gospel an account of a conversation between James and John in this story with uh, Jesus. And it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus 
essentially prophesied that James would drink the cup that Jesus drank and that he would share in the same fate as Jesus. And here, James does. James is killed for his faith in Jesus. Some of us bear uh, witness of Jesus in life and some of us bear witness of Jesus in death. In Philippians 1.14, Paul says, Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So God uses not just those that are miraculously saved in a supernatural way, but also those who are imprisoned or martyred to further his kingdom. And then Paul continues in Philippians 1, and he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul knows that there are times when God has saved him from death to further the work of the gospel. And yet, Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That no matter what happens, I win. Whether I, if I die, I win. If I live, I win. No matter what, Jesus is going to win. And Jesus is working through whatever situation happens with me. And, but yet he says he desires to depart and be with Jesus. And that would be far better than to be released from prison. That would be far better than to be saved from death to go be with Jesus. And so this is what helped me this week thinking about the departure of Tim. Um, that, uh, that it hurts for us to lose a good friend and a kind smile and a loving father and a grandfather but how much better it is, how much um, better to know that, that he has a glorified body and is rejoicing with his Savior. And that to live is Christ, but, but to die is gain and to be reunited with our Savior, to, to finish the race is even better. So we see that... Uh, that Peter, in this passage, Peter is spared because it's Passover. And so um, James is killed, and there's this feast of unleavened bread, and, and it's Passover. And the reason that he arrested Peter is because he saw that the Jewish people there got excited about it. And so he's not going to kill them during their festival, and they're not going to show up and see it. So he, he's, he's holding on. He's waiting for Passover to be over. And so... Um, the church then has, has an opportunity to respond. And they respond in fervent prayer. And the church gathers, to gear, gathers together at Mary's house and begins praying for Peter. And so here we see that there, there's a large prayer meeting. And this prayer meeting is held at the home of a woman named Mary. And her son is John Mark that we see later. And again, this is, this is John Mark, later known as Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Mary is likely incredibly wealthy. And um, 
Because when we see that Peter gets out of prison and he goes to her house, he's not knocking on the front door, but he's out knocking on the, the outer gate around her house. So she's got a, she's got a big house that's big enough for this, this big prayer meeting. And so I think uh, one of the, the important things here to note first is that Mary is someone who loves the church, who loves the Lord, who loves the mission of God and wants to serve the church church and use the resources that she has. So Mary's question isn't like, what am I required to give? Like, what percentage of my income do I need to, to give to God? Mary's question is, is how can I serve? How can I use my resources? And, uh, and so she, she has a home, so she offers up her home in a tumultuous time when, when uh, the the Romans are, are gathering up Christians and killing them and imprisoning them. She offers her home as a place for Christians to gather together. And so in, in some ways, she's not just offering her home, but she's, she's putting a target on her back. She's saying, use my home. Have this be a place where, where we're, we're all going to gather together. And so I think for us, that's, um, that's a good question for us to ask is, um, what, what things do I have in my life? Um, you know, maybe it's a home to host an MC or, or a place to have a, a summer intern to stay. Uh, maybe it's, it's an extra car. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a skill set. Um, but we are all created by God and we're all given, you know, different talents in, in the kingdom. And God expects us to use the things that he gives to us in this time to serve him. And, and to use it to, to serve his kingdom and not, not to hoard things together for ourselves. So our, uh, I said that there, there are two main points here. And the first was the power of prayer. So here we see the power of prayer on display in this passage. This is a church that, that understands the power of prayer. Um, and so they rush to their knees in, in all circumstances. And while they are praying for Peter, we see how God answers their prayers. We see, it says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries were before the door, guarding the prison. And so the first thing I, I noticed in this passage here is that, that Peter is sleeping. So Peter has been imprisoned. He's bound with chains. He's surrounded by guards. Um... You know, he, he just saw one of his closest friends get killed, and now they've, they've bound him to do the same thing. And it's the night before they're going to kill him. And Peter's sleeping. He's not manic. He's not so anxious that he can't sleep. He's just sleeping away what is probably his last night. And I know I can tell you that I wouldn't be sleeping. <laughs> that I would be terrified and concerned and um, probably, you know, praying and crying and I, I don't know what. But Peter is not. Uh, he knows what happened to James. He knows what is probably going to be his outcome in the morning, but yet Peter rests in the Lord. His rest in the Lord is so secure, he's able to just fall asleep. And uh, so Peter trusts that, that God is sovereign. And it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And, and he struck Peter 
on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel tells him to, to get up and to dress and put on his sandals and, and go. And so here, what, what jumps out to me is that uh, an angel of God shows up, and the angel strikes him in the side. And so um, I imagine just like a, a quick elbow right to the ribs. And uh, it kind of, uh, it made me think of like uh, when I was a little kid and uh, when I sat in church, I always sat next to my grandpa and when I'd start to fall asleep in a sermon, get the elbow right in the ribs and wake me back up. So the angels just, come on, it's time to get up, wake up. And what we see is that uh, Peter kind of wakes up, but he's like, he was sleeping so deep, his rest in the Lord is so great that even as he wakes up, he, he still doesn't even know if he's awake. He thinks he's still kind of like in a, in a dream or that God is showing him a vision that this, this isn't really happening. And so uh, he's, it says uh, in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and many were gathered together and they were praying. And then he knocked on the the door of the gateway, and the servant girl Rhoda comes to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, um, in her joy, she runs away to go tell everybody about him. And so she goes and tells them, and they say, you're out of your mind. And she keeps insisting, and she keeps saying that it, that it was uh, Peter. And they say, no, it's his, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and they opened, and they saw him, and they were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and he went on to another place. And so once Peter is out of prison, he knows where to go. He's not like wandering around Jerusalem like, I just got out of prison. I'm an escaped uh, prisoner. They're going to be looking for me. They're going to be and, and trying to duck into, you know, alleyways and stuff. He knows exactly where to go. And so because of that, that, that makes me think that like when they gathered here at Mary's house to pray, this was not the first time that they had done that, that, that they had been gathering here over and over whenever um, things were happening, when that they were going here probably on a regular, if not a daily basis, to gather together, to pray together, to seek the Lord. And so Peter knows, I'm going here, I'm going to find them. And so he heads straight to Mary's house. And again, he's, uh, he's an escaped prisoner, and so he likely doesn't want to be caught. Um, and so he gets there, and I assume that when he gets there, that they're still praying. Like, this is in the middle of night, but Rhoda's awake, and it sounds like other people are awake. And so I think they, they've been praying all night long for him. And so he, he gets there, and... Um, Rhoda says, Peter's here, he's here at the gate, and they assume she's crazy, and Peter can't be there. The whole reason they're awake right now is they're up, and they're staying up late to pray for him, to pray for his safety. So how can Peter be at the gate when we know Peter's in prison? That's why we're here. That's why we're praying. And so um, my, my question for you then is, have, have you ever prayed like this? Have you ever prayed for something that you don't really expect that God is going to do? And then when it happens, you're caught off guard? Like, because you weren't really expecting that God was going to do it. Sure, you're, you're praying for that, and you know that that's the thing you need to be praying for. But then it happens, and you're, 
okay, I, I didn't think that was actually going to happen. Like God did, he did this, he did this miraculous thing. And so I, I imagine that's kind of what, what's happening here. I also imagine that this, this whole scene is basically playing out like a sitcom. Peter's made it out of prison. He's made it all the way through the city. Um, he's finally at the door of the place where he's headed. Rhoda is getting frustrated because nobody is believing her. And she keeps leaving the gate without opening it up to let Peter in. And Peter's knocking. Hey, it's Peter. And then she runs off. And Peter's just, what happened? <laughs> Please, just open the door. I'm going to wake the neighbors up. People are going to hear that I'm knocking out here. They're going to come arrest me again. Just let me in. And then everybody inside, like Rhoda's telling them, and they're like, no, you're crazy. And then they're going back and they're praying for Peter. Dear Lord, please save Peter. And Peter's outside and he can hear him. And he's like, I'm here. Like, <laughs> let, let me in. So then finally, they let him in. And then as soon as he gets in, he's just like, shh. Like, everybody be quiet. Listen. This is what happened. I got to go. <laughs> go tell James and the brothers, and then he's off, and he just runs away. So now we're, we're back at the other part of the story, and we, we hear what, what's happening with the Romans. And it says, Now the day came, and there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death, and then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Uh, the first thing here is it says there was no little disturbance. And that's a weird way to say a big disturbance. Like there was a big disturbance among the soldiers over what happened to Peter. And the reason there's a big disturbance is because uh, essentially um, when a prisoner lost or a guard lost a prisoner, it what would happen is it's now their job to be the substitute. So whatever punishment that prisoner was going to have, now the guard has the prisoner. And they know this guy was going to be killed. So they're trying to figure out what happened so that they don't die. And Herod searches for him, doesn't find him. And so now they, they do. He puts them to death. He kills them. So now... Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Uh, this passage seems kind of jarring compared to the rest of the story that like, we're, we're hearing about Peter being imprisoned and let go, and, and, and then we're kind of thrown back into this story at first that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense with the rest of the story. Um, the first thing to note here is that if this story sounds a little, uh, you know, uh, like fantasy, like, oh, you know, they were playing fast and loose here with what actually happened. First of all, we, we uh, should trust the scripture. And the second is that we also, uh, the, this story is affirmed by the Jewish Roman historian Josephus, and he tells us almost 
exactly the same thing, that, that there was a, in 44 AD, Herod was speaking to the people immediately after the Passover. And during that, someone cries out that you're God. And he doesn't address it and say, you know, no, I'm not. And uh, because of that, he falls sick and dies. So we know that, that this isn't just a, a story that um, was just in the Christian community, but everybody there saw this thing happen. And everybody knows and heard the guy yell that you're a God and saw that Herod didn't respond to it. So um, this is as our second point here is that uh, the, the downfall of pride. And so... Um, these, these two stories kind of play on each other where we see the, the Christian believers who are relying on God, who are trusting in God and, and are not trusting in themselves and know that they can't do anything on their own. And then we're seeing that against this story with Herod who is being filled with pride, who is being puffed up, who when someone says, like, you're a God, he's like, well, yeah, I kind of am, you know. Um, and the result is God kills him. So we have, you know, we have a story where God allowed Herod to kill a child of God. And then we have a story where God decided to kill Herod himself. And so what, what we see here is that, um, is that uh, Herod, you know, Herod thought he was in control in this situation. He didn't like what was going on, so he's like, well, I'm, I'm going to gather up these Christians. I'm going to kill them. And, um, and it, it doesn't seem that he necessarily hated the Christians. You know, he's, he's not necessarily Nero, but he's just, the people, the, the Jewish people were excited about it. So, yeah, I'm going to do it again. I, I, you know, I want people to like me. Um, but God is showing him, you are not in control and he's showing everyone else around, like, you are not in control. I am the one in control. Whether someone lives or dies, I am sovereign, and it is my choice. And I know that, that you, you killed James, but you are not the reason that James is dead. I allowed James to be killed. And I am the reason that Peter is alive, and I am the reason that Herod is now dead. And in thinking about this, I thought this passage kind of has some parallels to Daniel 2 through 4, where we see that King Nebuchadnezzar demands that, that Daniel and his friends be put to death for not worshiping him. And God saves them from the fiery furnace. And then later, Nebuchadnezzar states that, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence for my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice comes from heaven and says, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you, and you have been driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like the ox. And seven times I will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately... What he had said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from the people, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And so, just like that story, God is showing his people once again, like, the rulers around you, they 
are puffed up with pride and they think that they are powerful and they think that they are in control. But in no matter what situation you find yourself in, I am in control. That, that God is in control of all things and nothing happens outside of him allowing it to happen. And so finally, we see the ultimate answer at the end of the passage there, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So Herod couldn't stop the work of the Lord. The Jewish religious leaders couldn't stop the work of the Lord. Killing Christians didn't stop the work of the Lord from increasing and multiplying. And putting them in prison didn't stop it from increasing and multiplying. And whether Christians were killed or rescued or persecuted or not persecuted, that the Lord was continuing his work in his people and saving souls for his kingdom. So as believers, we will face difficulties. And we can be encouraged that if we are trusting God and we are serving him, he never leaves us. And there are times that that God is going to rescue us from difficult situations like the angel taking Peter out of prison. And there are times that God chooses not to remove us from difficult situations. And um, and in those times that, that he is with us every step of the way, he is the one that gives us peace. He is the one that gives us strength in those difficult situations. And, and like we see in this passage, like the church in Acts, like what we should be doing in those difficult situations is we, we come together as a body, that, that we bear one another's burdens, that we come together and we pray fervently to the Lord because we know that no matter what, that the Lord is in control and that he loves his bride, that he loves his children and, um, and we are on mission with him to see his kingdom being built in the world. So, um, as, as we break here for the Lord's Supper, um, if, if, if you are new, we take communion together every week, and the reason we do that is, is to be reminded um, weekly that the whole purpose of, of why we're gathered is because our sin against God was so great that it separated us from God. And because of that, Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died as a propitiation for our sin. And so we know that we have new life in Jesus. And so um, for us, we, we, we take the bread, we take the cup to remember that, that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was spilled for us. And so if you're a believer and you, you trust in Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, then we ask that, that you would join with us in this time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and to remember that, that he was raised from the dead and that um, we have new life in him. If that doesn't describe you, then we ask that, that you not do that and, uh, and simply find somebody around you and ask them about that. And we would love to talk with you more about that. We would love to pray with you. We would love um, to see God move in your heart. And uh, if, if you are new and you haven't grabbed that yet, we, we have uh, the cup and the juice is right out here in the lobby and it's a little uh, pre-portioned um, 
thing there. So um, take some time, pray for a moment, um, and then uh, join with us in communion.